Hey, welcome back to Patriots of the Core podcast. I'm Thad Forrester. Happy New Year to you. I hope you had a great Christmas season and are now off to a kick-butt 2019. I have been fiddling around myself with this podcast trying to figure out why it suddenly has no name on iTunes. So if you search for Patriots of the Core on iTunes, it doesn't show up. You can search by my name and it shows up. So anyway, I hope that is fixed by the time this episode releases. It should, but probably not too many people have been affected, but hopefully it hasn't cost me a few listeners anyway. I'm getting into our guest today. If you search for Justin Carroll on the web, you'll find very little about him, and good luck finding a picture of his face. By the way, he sent me a few pictures that I could use for the post, and of course none of them show his face. Uh, This former Marine is now a security and privacy consultant. Carol stresses it's not about hiding anything but protecting our information. Uh, In his early days, he transitions from from Force Recon to becoming a member of the first Fox Company, which is the first MARSOC unit to deploy, under, and this was under Major Fred Galvin, also known as uh, Task Force Violent. There's a lot of information out there about this unit and some things that happened, and we don't really talk about that at Justin's request but you can go and read more about that if you would like. Today, we spend most of our time learning how to protect ourselves and our children online. Justin's has got it figured out since he's managed to keep himself from being blasted all over the web. We also talk about some of his current projects, like Across the Peak podcast, uh, where his co-host is a former Patriot to the Core guest, Rich Brown, who was in uh, early 2018. Uh, Revolver Guy, sorry, revolverguy.com. And his book, The Complete Privacy and Security Desk Reference, Volumes 1 and 2. So Justin is full of tips that anyone can and should do to be a little more careful regarding our online presence, whether it's social media, whether it's our banking information, whether it's our credit, or including our children's. He talks about how kids, their credit can be screwed up and you don't know it because they're young until you, then later on when they're an adult and you go to apply for something. So he gives some great tips. I hope you really enjoy this uh, time with Justin. I, it was great talking with him. I heard you on um, a podcast with, is it Fred Galvin? Yeah, Fred Galvin. Uh, Fred has a podcast called The Go Commando Show, and uh, Fred was my company commander uh, in, at my last military uh, com- organization, and uh, he, he and I were, our whole company was uh involved in a pretty unpleasant event in Afghanistan. Uh, so I, I was on his show. Yeah, he seems like a good guy. And I'd heard him. I don't know if he was on software before, but they've at least talked about him. Um, so it, it was a familiar name to me. But and just for, yeah. so for the listeners know, yes, there's, there's stuff out there. There's some controversial stuff that we're not going to talk about at your request, which is great. Fred talked about that a little bit in that interview. Yeah, Fred's, uh, Fred has been on – he's been on SoftRep maybe a couple times. He's also been on the American Warrior Show at least once uh, to, to kind of talk about what happened in the uh, aftermath of that. Well, how much did your – you had a monotonous second shift p- job back – prior to your military days, how much did that job play in your, you know, in you joining the military? A lot, man. I worked in a, I worked in a factory as an assembler and I looked around at people who had been there for 30 years and were just terribly happy and proud of their seniority and thrilled to be there and just looked forward to the day that they could retire and not go anywhere. And they, I, I, you know, I hate to, 
sound denigrating or better than anybody, but most of them are horribly out of shape. And man, my imagination was just running wild while I was working in that place thinking I, 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 I can't be here 30 years. I can't be that guy that, uh, 29 years from now is still here and is glad to be here and has never gone out and seen or done anything else. So that was a pretty big impetus, pretty big push to do something to, to get out of Dodge. You made a pretty quick decision, didn't you? Uh, I did. I made a, I made a, yeah, I made a fairly quick decision and, uh, uh I, I was in the delayed entry program just a few days, uh, well, a couple days. And, uh, yeah, I joined the Marine Corps. I, I actually went to an army recruiter and said I wanted to be a ranger. And he's like, yeah, that's great, man. We can definitely make that happen. And, uh, he said, it'll be probably a couple of weeks before we get you out of the door. And I said, okay, I'll be right back. And I popped right next door to the Marine recruiter's office who had a sign on his door that said no cash bonus details inside. And I said, Hey man, I want to be a Marine. How soon can you make that happen? And he's like, we we get you out of here day after tomorrow. So, or maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's the following day. I think I had to go to maps and then come home and then leave the, the next morning. But it was a very speedy turnaround and um, probably not in my best interest or probably not what I would recommend to anybody that's joining the military. But the fastest way out of town was to, was to take an open contract, which meant I had no job assigned, which I didn't know at the time meant I could not be an infantryman. So, uh, which is all I, yeah, that's all I thought the Marine Corps was at the time. Uh, and I, I found out pretty quickly that wasn't the case, but yeah, um, got out of town pretty, pretty quick when I finally made the decision to, to pull the trigger. What does that mean? No cash bonus. <laughs> um, that was, uh, my recruiter had, uh, very much a mentality of, I don't, uh, we, we don't need you. You come prove to me that you're good enough to be one of us kind of mentality. Okay. So is weeding out the guys that were just looking for a lot of upfront money then? Well, <laughs> um, a, a little bit. Of, I, I, there was definitely an element of showmanship there. Um, and he was, he was a uh, phenomenal recruiter, recruiter of the year, just, just crushing it out there. And, uh, I, I think that was part of his, uh, kind of part of his spiel what is your career like in the in the marines because by the way i haven't had many marines on my show i i can i mean I, quickly thinking I, I can think of two one of them is your friend rich brown and uh, one of them is justin constantine there's probably a few others i'm leaving off but that hasn't been the prominent service branch i guess so will you just tell us because i know you've done some force recon and marsoc and i don't really know the difference and what those are yeah, so it, it, it's not super impressive um, as for really anybody's background in the military. Uh, I went open contract. I ended up going to 29 Palms for about a year to be a, a radio operator and then a radio repair guy. And then um, went to my first duty station in Southern California, and I was the worst radio repair person ever. I absolutely hated it. Ended up getting orders to 3rd Reconnaissance Battalion, and that got me like into the reconnaissance world. And I ended up deploying as a radio operator in a force reconnaissance team. Uh, I was military on-the-job trained. And then when MARSOC stood up and 2nd Force Reconnaissance Company was deactivated, everybody, just, everybody that was at 
Second Force Recon Company that morning on, I believe it was May 26th. It was May, uh, I'm sorry, March something of 2006. Um, everybody that started that day off at Second Force Reconnaissance Company was now a member of Second Marine Special Operations Battalion. Uh, so it was an operator uh, there, a shooter, team, assaulter, uh, whatever you want to call it. And uh, ended up being with the, the first crew that deployed and yeah, kind of the piece that I don't I really want to go into, mostly just because I'm not nearly as qualified as some of the other people from my company that were more thoroughly involved with that situation. We were the company that was actually kicked out of Afghanistan. So uh, about two years in Southern California, two years in Okinawa at 3rd Recon Battalion, and then my last four at Camp Lejeune with 2nd Force Recon Company and 2nd Marine Special Operations Battalion. So Force Recon was before MARSOC, or is it all part of the same? No, that uh, that was before MARSOC, and uh, at the, there was a there was a it, it gets really kind of tricky. There was an interim period there where uh, MARSOC basically staffed itself, at least on the uh, on the operator assaulter team guy side with Force Recon Marines because that was the most qualified group of people in the Marine Corps for that position. Even at the time, I thought, oh, recon Marine were just as good as any soft asset. And little did I know, like, I didn't know how much I didn't know. I, I didn't understand at the time as a corporal or a sergeant that uh, special operations is more than sniping and free falling and being able to dive and being really fit PT wise. Um, I didn't realize there was all this other language stuff and soft skill stuff and all this non-permissive environment stuff, or um, excuse me, permissive environment stuff, like this whole spectrum of skills, I didn't even know that we didn't have because I didn't even know about them. So as far as being fully qualified soft operators, probably at that time, we, I would say we were not. Um, as far as being able to go to Afghanistan and pretty much do the job that everybody else was doing, I would say we were pretty qualified, excellent shooters, excellent, uh, you know, uh, green side patrolling trained people. But, uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm rambling on, but there was this interim period where they said, okay, if you're a force recon Marine, you're now a MARSOC operator, MARSOC member and force recon just went away for a while. Uh, since then the Marine Corps has reconstituted the force reconnaissance program um i'm not sure how familiar you are with the uh the concept of the mu the marine expeditionary unit no uh -uh. but so that is like there's basically uh two at least two mu's deployed with uh the navy fleets at any given time and that consists of basically a battalion of infantry a, a battalion of tanks a battery of artillery all the amphibious landing craft to get that stuff to the beach, helicopter squadron, um, a fixed wing squadron, all four deployed on ships in the Atlantic or the Pacific or right, basically wherever, wherever they're needed. It's the Marine Corps' way of projecting power uh, forward. So every single Mew, and those generally go in like six-month cycles. You're out for six months, and then you're back, like kind of down for six months, and then you're working up, getting ready to go out for another one. Uh, at least during peacetime. And every Mew has a reconnaissance platoon that is basically responsible for reconnoitering the beach so the landing craft can land 
Uh, they can give a report back to the Mew commander so he knows wh- like where to land the, the landing craft if they have to bring the, the Marines onto the shore. And then the Force Reconnaissance Platoon is considered a deeper reconnaissance platoon. Uh, that's, I, I think the, the idea is they can go like 20 kilometers forward of the forward line of troops or the beachhead or whatever. Uh, and they're also a direct action asset. I didn't know anything about the Muse for sure. So yeah, yeah. I hope that's not too uh, too rambly there. Not at all. I, I wanted to get some some background info on the this the Marine world that you were in. How does how does Marsoc compare when you compare to some other names that we know, Devgru or CAG or any of those other ones? Uh, as far as the uh, as far as the uh, the special mission units or the you know the quote unquote tier one assets, I I don't. I don't think there's a comparison there as far as the, uh, like the, I guess, Rangers, special forces, Navy seals. Um, I, I'd really be afraid to, I'd really be afraid to make a comparison. Um, but I think most of the, most of the soft assets have similar mission sets, similar training and, and that sort of thing. Um, if there's one thing that Marsoc is probably lacking, um, it's not guys that want to go out and do the do the job the best they possibly can, or guys that are dedicated to training. I would say the one thing that they are probably lacking at this point is just institutional uh, memory and institutional maturity, uh, because having only been around for about 12 years, we don't have general officers that came up through the ranks as MARSOC operators. We don't have sergeants major that came in and have been on a team since they were a corporal. So kind of that institutional memory um, I, I think probably plays a big role in, in big picture stuff. So uh, outside of that, I'd be afraid to, to, to draw a direct comparison. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, my brother was a combat controller and so they always, you know, attached to other units too. And he was, he was with uh, an SF team, an ODA team. Uh, what about with the Marines? Do you have your own JTACs? Do you do you use them from the Air Force or from some somebody else? So at the time, we definitely had uh, some fully qualified JTACs. We also had um, uh, even as as force reconnaissance uh, platoons going out with the MU. We always had an air officer that went out who uh, is a fully qualified pilot. Basically, as a major, does a tour as an air officer for a platoon. I don't know how that's working now. I imagine in some cases, uh, JTAC, I'm sorry, um, CCTs, TACPs uh, are probably assigned to MARSOC companies, depending on where, what theater they're in and, and what they're doing. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how that's working now. Did your military career work out like you wanted it to when you got out? Were you kind of, were you happy with your career there? You know, I think I was ready to get out. I, when I got out, I was on the recruiting duty hit list. I didn't really feel like I'd accomplished everything that I wanted to accomplish. But uh, at the time, my option was basically stay in and go uh, go out on the street to recruiting duty for three years. And at the time, there was no closed loop in MARSOC, so I could have gone anywhere after that. And that wasn't really a thing I was interested in doing. Uh, but... I'll be honest, man. Thing, I, I have nothing whatsoever to complain about. <laughs> if you asked me what I would go back and change, I would say absolutely nothing. Wow, okay. Talking about your job in the factory before you went in, I mean, that's 
probably one of the best things my parents did when I was six, when I turned 16. The summer after I was 16, I worked in a furniture plant, um, and it and I did every summer in high school, and then right after, and it was awful. It was awful. I mean, it was hot. Assembly line work, you know, so the same thing over and over, same screws, drill here, 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 and and I looked around too, and I was like, this is there's no way I will do anything to not do this the rest of my life, whatever it takes. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I I mean, I don't. I don't. If you're happy doing that, good on you, man. I I don't. I don't have a like. I'm not mad at you, um, or or anyone who's uh, mm-hmm. who's able to be happy doing that. Like we need people doing that. But for me, it was, man, I was, every night I went into work or every afternoon went into work and was just scheming, okay, how much money can I save this week? How can I get out of here? And, and the military was just an escape hatch for me. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, it was always something I had wanted to do. Don't, don't get me wrong. It wasn't just like, yeah, this is the fastest way out of town. But also it was that. Well, you at some point, uh, maybe this is when you got out, you became a special skills instructor. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, so I, I got out of the Marine Corps in early 2008, and I, uh, I, I went to work for another government agency as a, as a contractor. I spent a couple of years doing that. Dumb guy stuff running around in, uh, with, with a rifle and a radio, uh, not pretty unskilled labor, and just kind of through luck of the draw, I got a job at the Marine Special Operations Schoolhouse at the end of what ended up being my last deployment with that organization. Um, I spent five years, just under five years, as a full-time equivalent instructor uh, there uh, teaching special reconnaissance. And that opened, um, man, that just opened up the world to me. I, I So I'm a full-time instructor now, and I have been since I took that job way back in 2010. And I've come to realize being an instructor kind of is what I am. I, I, you know, I guess there's something to the adage that those who can't do teach. Uh, but I, I truly, truly love teaching. And um, also just like picked up a variety of different odd and end skill sets at the schoolhouse. Hey, you have to teach this thing, which kind of by default means you have to learn it. So probably one of the best things that could have, could have possibly happened to me at that point in my life. Was that for MARSOC at the time? Yes. Yes, it okay. was. Okay. What about anything else with your military career, Justin, that you think would be good for us to, to discuss? I, I, I mean, I know there's I a bunch in there, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it. Um, I, I got to deploy to a bunch of different countries, I, uh, including Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I got to see some, you know, some pretty life-changing things and you know have some uh basically have that desire to leave that factory completely validated and seeing some things that just you can't imagine unless you've seen yourself so um that's yeah i could probably go down a bunch of different rabbit holes with that good bad and and different but i that pretty much rounds out my my work career well i figure if you hadn't have gone to the military you would not be doing what you're doing now full-time would you no no absolutely not um because i i wouldn't have uh i probably wouldn't have been put in the position to learn what i teach now i probably wouldn't have you know i I wrote an article uh, a few weeks ago about being a professional instructor and i I think a large part of 
being a good instructor is doing a lot of it and, and really having the opportunity to hone your craft. And I don't think I would have gotten that otherwise. And yeah, I, I, I certainly wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today without that experience. Well, and I certainly appreciate you serving our country, and that's the main reason why I wanted you on the show is because of your willingness to fight and protect us to fight evil. So that's the big reason why I, I asked you to come on. And I, I do want to talk about your kind of what you're doing more now, your security and privacy consultant. And first of all, what type of businesses are you know do you work with? And, and, and is this you know I guess there's a huge demand for it. Well, uh, I'm very very fortunate that. Uh, Probably, I'd say probably 85% of my work comes from the military, and probably, uh, probably at least 85% of that comes from the soft community. Uh, so I still work okay. very, very closely with uh, uh, MARSOC, USASOC, Naval Special Warfare. Uh, I, I still have the opportunity to rub shoulders with those people, um, at least on a monthly basis, if not several times a month. So. Um, as far as companies, it, uh, again, very small sector of my work, but everything from healthcare institutions to financial institutions to, um, I mean, man, you, you name it, everybody, everybody needs cybersecurity regardless of what industry they're in, especially if they're handling any kind of healthcare data, which is legally protected to a fairly high standard any type of financial data, which is almost any business that processes any credit card transactions. Um, it gets pretty, it's, it's a good field to be in right now. Well, and, and that's what I wanted to speak on is, is from the standpoint of an average guy like me isn't well known. You know, I've got an online presence with your, some of your typical social media and a website and a podcast, but you know, I've got my family and a regular day job. What, what are some, what are typical threats that somebody like me, which is, I guess the majority of us, um, you know, has to be aware of. Well, I think the big, I think the big question I get all the time, and and it, it's not really phrased like this anymore. It's phrased like a little bit more slyly uh, these days. It seems like, but the the root of the question I frequently get is, I don't have anything to hide. Why should I care? And I guess it goes back to, I, I would I would throw that back in that person's court and say, yeah, you may not have anything at all to hide. I would imagine this as having something to protect, and we all have something to protect uh, to include maybe uh, financial information. All of us have financial information to protect. That's probably the most visceral thing for most people uh, to, to immediately say, eh, yeah, that's true. I do want to protect that stuff. Uh, we have images of our children. If you have kids, you probably have photographs of them. You probably don't want someone that you don't know having access mm -hmm. to those photographs. Um, you probably have healthcare information and uh, basically any information about you. And there has to be a balance here. I, I <laughs> let me get this out up front. So I, I, I hosted and produced the first almost 90 episodes of a podcast called the complete privacy and security podcast. And I, I began to get a little frustrated with it because every week the listener questions got more and more specific and applied to fewer and fewer people. And the people that are asking these very, very specific questions that apply only to maybe in some cases only to them specifically, every minute I spend answering that question is a minute I'm not spending answering a question that applies to nearly everyone else. 
And we all have something to protect. We all have something that needs to, that, that we need to safeguard, but we have to balance that with, yes, I still need to go out and visit friends. I still need a way for people to get in touch with me. I still need to have people come over to my house. So um, I, I do want to point out that, yes, I'm the paranoid guy that only talks on encrypted apps and uses all this crazy, all these crazy <laughs> privacy measures. Uh, but I don't necessarily recommend that for everybody unless it's your hobby and you're willing to deal with all the inconvenience of it. You're hard to find. That's for sure. <laughs> I think it's I'm great. glad to hear that. <laughs> well, I mean, you teach it, so it's a good thing. And I know, uh, well, you've got a book, which is on my list. Where's, that, where's the name of the book at? Uh, you got, well, you got a second edition coming out. Where's, I didn't write it down. So I've got, yeah, I've got a couple out right now. I've got a book called The Complete Privacy and Security Desk Reference. There's two volumes of that. And Michael and I uh, wrote that book kind of as let's take everything we know right now and get it out on the page. And then we're like, wait, we know all this other stuff that we didn't actually work into this book because it took us like a year and a half to write it. So let's write a second edition. And by that time that came out, we had like 85 pages of updates to the first one. So uh, that uh, that two volume uh, work is available on Amazon. And the other one is uh, a much shorter trimmer volume that I wrote. That's very, very specialized or I co-wrote with my friend drew and it's called Comsec, and it's much, much more focused just on Uber private and secure communications. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely nerd way out on this stuff. So I'm, I'm definitely at a far end of the spectrum on it. Well, a, a good friend of mine doesn't have a mailbox. He only uses a P.O. box. And I asked him one time about, you know, how, you know, why he does that and how he kind of hides a little bit because he doesn't live in a really big city. And um, he said, he said, don't subscribe to magazines, period. Don't get any magazines. And, you know, I kind of succumbed to the temptation, I don't know, a while back. I had some un unused airline miles, and they said, here you go. You can get some magazines. I said, sure, okay, I'll get some travel and leisure. And I don't know, I got several magazines, which was, which I wish I hadn't have done, because then I started getting all kinds of other, you know, junk mail. And uh, What do you say about that with just, with, because you, know, you, you, you get, a, you get a, a mortgage, and, I mean, you get the, you get one credit card, and then all these other credit card start, offers start coming. Okay, yeah, I'll address those two things separately, getting junk mail and magazines and stuff, and then getting credit card offers. But, yeah, you're, you're right. When I take a mortgage out and I buy that house in my name and, and the county tax assessor is given my information along with my address, there's, it's very, very difficult to permanently hide that presence. Um, I would say if anyone's interested and they're like, yeah, I, next time I buy a house, I want to do it completely privately, I would recommend doing it through a land trust. And I'm not, I'm not the expert on that, but there is a lot of information about it in volume two of the complete privacy and security desk reference. Um, it, the house will belong to that trust and you can obscure that relatively easily. Once you've, once you've made that decision though, a lot of those things are never going to go away, but you can limit a lot of other third parties that would get access to that information by, like your friend said, not getting mail at your home. Every time you go to the grocery store and sign up for that store loyalty card and get a credit card, um, uh, subscribe to a magazine, all that information gets bought and sold to all these other parties. And, and I hate to say it, but things like the NRA, uh, 
their privacy policy is pretty clear that they don't share your information. Uh, but as a test, I signed up in someone else's name at my address and almost immediately was barraged with junk mail from Cabela's and Bass Pro and whoever else. Um, information is an incredibly valuable commodity, and people will give you free things to get access to your information, like like smartphone apps or magazines or, or whatever. Uh, or in the grocery store loyalty card example, discounts on their stuff, which, you know, we like none of us think twice about it, but when you give your email address and your phone number and your name, they're able to take that information and sell it to Facebook, who through your email address and your phone number can tie it to your Facebook account, making that a much more valuable uh, commodity because now not only can they see what you do on Facebook, they can see what you do in the real world. They can see how many people are in your family based on the frequency of your grocery shopping and how much you buy. They can probably make assessments about your uh, education and income based on the types of things you buy. They can probably make pretty accurate assessments about your health. So wow. uh, that's one side of it. The other side is credit. Um, so, Well, actually, let me back up. You can limit that to a great extent by doing what your friend said, getting a P.O. box and having everything sent to your P.O. box. That's not a 100% solution because the tax office will have that information and your lender will have that information, but it, it protects you from a lot of those third parties that would trade that information otherwise. Uh, if you want to protect yourself from um, the credit bureaus sharing your credit information, my recommendation would be to get a credit freeze thanks to a law that was passed back in October as a response to the big Equifax data breach we saw last year. You can now get a credit freeze completely free, and that prevents those credit reporting agencies from sharing your information. Uh, basically, you'll never get that pre-approved Discover card offer ever again. Really? Yes. Wow. And it, it does a tremendous job at protecting you from financial identity theft because no, no new lines of credit can be taken in your name until you call that agency and lift that credit freeze. Well, and I don't want to give away too much because I'm gonna. I'll have a link to your books. Volume, it's two volumes, right? Yes. Yeah, I want to. I want to definitely promote that. Um, but what, what else? What are just some simple things? Or and maybe this is them. But if there's anything else, just simple that that somebody like like I can do to protect my online or my identity. Period. I guess. So I, I would say, st uh, like starting at the the basic steps that everybody should do is use better passwords. And that sounds daunting. Everybody knows your password is supposed to be X number of characters long and have a capital and a special character and a number. Um, really, the only way to, to authoritatively use better passwords is, is to take those out of the very frail confines of human memory and put those into a password manager. And as an entry-level password manager, I would strongly recommend that people check out a program called LastPass. Uh, it's free to use on one device. I think it's $2 a month for their premium package. But basically, you have to re now remember only one password, and that's the password to get into that account. It will remember everything else for you. And this is one of the, I'm going to say, very, very rare instances where security and convenience align. And this also makes your life easier because if that computer remembers your passwords, you never have that scenario where you're trying to 
trying to create an account for something that says, oh, there's already an account with this email address. And you're like, oh, no, I, I don't remember making this. Yep. I don't remember my password. It's, it's remembered in that LastPass account for you. Yeah, I've never heard of that. Yeah, I, well, there's I, actually I, a lot I, of them out there, right? Yeah, there there are a bunch of them out there. Um, I actually use one called KeyPass XC. It works a little bit differently. Um, the problem with KeyPass XC for non-skilled users is that database is only stored locally on my device. So if I lose my device, I've just lost all my passwords to everything. Uh, LastPass uh, stores your, an encrypted version of your password database on a cloud-based server that you can access from anywhere, any device. You can even share accounts. So if you want to share certain passwords with your wife, but not all your passwords with your wife, and she doesn't want to share all her passwords with you, you can set up basically different compartments that different people can access or one that, let's say you have, you want you, your wife, and your kids all to be able to access, like let's say Netflix. You can put that password into one compartment that everyone can access, but then everyone can have their own private compartment, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Uh, it, it has a ton of flexibility like that. And I, I don't make any money at all from the sale of LastPass or, or from their continued growth. But I think it's a great, great entry-level option or a great o- option for multiple people that are trying to use the same password manager database. I, I think it's a fantastic option. Um, I would say the number two thing is use two-factor authentication. Are you familiar with this, Thad? Yes. Okay. Um, probably yeah, yeah, most people. Yeah, yeah. Probably most people are by now. Um, unfortunately, still don't see it used terribly frequently. There's still a ton of people that are not using two-factor authentication at all really on anything except when Google makes them receive a text message because they're logging in from a strange device or something uh-huh. like that. But, and I focus, like you asked that question, and I focus on online accounts because those are probably our most exposed items out there in the, in the ether. Those are probably our most at-risk digital items because they exist in a place where anybody can touch them. I can log into Gmail and if I know your email address, I can touch your account. I can start testing passwords against that account. So that, that is probably where I would start tightening up the ship, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of businesses are doing a lot of training. I'm sure my, my company has. And, you know, used to we had to change our password every 90 days. And they, they kind of they said, okay, based on feedback, we're going to let you keep your password. But now it's got to be this much more complex and, you know, because I was one of the idiots who there for a while, I would do, okay, spring 2016, summer, you know, 2016, have a, have, a, have a capital letter thrown in there somewhere and come to find out that a lot of people did that. And I, I didn't know it till till we got some training on it. So instead of maybe a phrase, maybe it's it's a sentence, you know, or, a, or maybe it is a phrase instead of just a word. That's some of the tips that I've been given. Yeah, and I, title, I, you know, or something. I think we kind of failed humanity when we started calling it a password because that subconsciously just primes our brain to think, oh, it's it's got to be a word. I've got to think of a word and make it complex somehow. But we're we're not very good at <laughs> at making things random. Yep, that's right. Which which is another one of the benefits of the password manager. You can have it actually generate random passwords for you, which. 
I'm sure some people are familiar with through like Apple's iCloud keychain and services like that, that like iPhones are starting to try to nudge people to have better passwords. But yeah, yeah, a, a good password manager will be able to generate very, very complex passwords. And you only have to know one password. And that's the one to get into that account that manages all the others, which should probably tell you you need a really good one on that one. Man, I, I, when I signed up for a Hotmail account years ago, so probably right after I, heard, I, I learned of the Internet, this would have been the late 90s, I got a Hotmail account, and at the time, your password, it could be four characters long. And I used four characters, <laughs> and they were the same character. And I did that for years, probably maybe even 10 years. I mean, how dumb is that? <laughs> well, um I'll just say we've all we've all done it, man. We've all everybody's ignorant about something, right? I I am very very savvy on this particular topic. There's a lot of things I know nothing about. It it just it just is the way it is. We, we all have a finite bandwidth and a finite amount of energy and attention to to spend really on anything. So I get it, and and I've been there. I um I had my identity like this is a big thing that got me into this. I had my identity stolen pretty comprehensively while I was overseas several years ago. And that was one of the big things that I, I was kind of like, never again, what do I have to do to not let this happen to me again? What about Google location services? I get that message sometimes on my phone. Do you want Google to know your location? What are the risks there? So first and foremost, um, I am kind of big on, I guess, companies that have a code of corporate ethics and kind of stick to it companies that kind of tell you what they do are upfront about what they're going to do what in in whatever it is whether they're going to work on my car or they're going to handle my email i want them to be upfront and transparent with me about what's going on and google has it kind of has a track record of being a little bit shady with their i i hesitate to say their customers their account holders let's say um about how they collect location information. And a good example of that is the Android phone. About this time last year, an article broke that even if you had location services completely turned off on your device, Google was still collecting that information. Even if you had a SIM card, no SIM card in the device and location services turned off, Google was still able to extrapolate some information about your location and transmit that back to Google. And that's not clear in the terms of the service that they're able to do that if you turn location services completely off. They uh, got caught by some researchers who actually analyzed the traffic being transmitted back to Google off these devices. Um, they said, oh, okay, we're, we're not going to do this anymore. And they've continued to do it. And they've also continued to present those pop-ups on not only on Android devices, but also iOS devices that have Google apps installed that are a little bit misleading in the way they're worded, uh, basically to convince people to turn location services on so Google can have full, free, and unfettered access to exactly where you're going. And this is used, this basically coincides really, really well with the business model of the internet, which is to nudge you to spend money that you probably wouldn't have otherwise spent. Um, this very, very targeted marketing, which is the underpinning of how everyone on the internet makes money. Um, that's, that's, I, I guess the, maybe the least scary 
uh, thing that could go wrong with this. But Google has that information, and in, they also have an incredible amount of money to spend on the security problem. So Google is very, very secure. But in the fullness of time, how secure will they be? Um, or let's imagine, uh, let's, let's just take a look at the presidencies of the last, I don't know, 20 years. We seem to be, regardless of which side we're on, voting for more and more extreme candidates to the right or to the left. We're, we're kind of in this thing of the most extreme candidate is going to get the, is going to be the loudest voice in the person that we vote for. And most listeners can probably uh, imagine a situation where there's a very, very extreme left or very, very extreme right candidate who can just go to Google and say, give me the, Give me the name, give me the email address of every single person that's visited a gun shop or a firing range in the last year, or give me the um, the email address, the phone number, the personal details of every person that has attended a church of a certain religion or has gone to an abortion clinic or a marijuana dispensary. Um, that, like, That's where my head goes, and I start to get really concerned about government overreach because it's, it's been proven that it's been done. Uh, so that's probably the most scary outcome, I guess, less, you know, somewhere in the middle of those two outcomes of Google targeting ads to us and tyrannical governments targeting individuals based on all this recorded history that Google has would be something like Google just being hacked and losing all this data. And in the fullness of time, that almost certainly will happen. So there's a full gamut of potential bad outcomes to one party holding all this information. Are laws and regulations re- evolving fast enough to keep up with c- cyber threat innovations? I'm, I'm guessing not. But. <laughs> um, no. So um, probably the single biggest thing we've seen is GDPR uh, in the EU, and it's still so early we have no idea what the what the impact of that is really going to be, uh, and I'm also fairly uninformed on it as a as a lazy American that can't read foreign news. Um, it, it's a it's a pretty sweeping reform of of how data is handled, but we really don't know how that's going to shake out in the long term. In the U.S., um, we've actually lost a lot of protections as, as far as things like that go, both on the corporate side um, and the the Patriot Act that was recently renewed. Um, I would say we're probably moving in exactly the wrong direction. And, you know, I'm not anti-government. I'm not anti-intelligence community. They're, they're a big part of my clientele and a big part of my adult working life. But even the NSA, even the NSA has kind of proven that no one is invulnerable. Um, just look at the massive amount of damage done by one single individual who turned rogue at the NSA just because they have all this information and a lot of people have access to it. It, it, It's, it's, there's a lot of potential for something to go wrong. What about the identities of the dead or maybe even more specifically military who have been killed? How big a problem is that of their identities being stolen? Um, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't. I don't really have any idea at all. Um, I, I can't speak a little bit to the living. There have been several fairly well publicized cases of uh, living military members being doxxed, uh, including like photographs, home addresses, next of kin, things like that. 
for basically for the uh, you know the Islamic extremists here in the United States that can go target those individuals. But as far as um, stealing the identities of dead military members, I would I would not be surprised at all. But to be honest, I don't have a lot of visibility on it. Okay, we dealt with that a little bit with my brother Mark. I don't think it was a real extreme case. Somebody called it and contacted us, and uh, I think it's. I think that has stopped, but it was more so of, um, I don't think it got real serious other than him acting like he was my brother and using his pictures as they were himself. And But um, I did hear an incredible story. I believe it was on uh, the Jordan Harbinger show, or at the time it may have been The Art of Charm, and he had Jack Barsky on there. I think this is the guy. I may be getting my guys mixed up. Anyway, he had basically gotten the identity of a, a child that had died. Uh, two years old or younger, or it was probably an infant, and he used that child's identity and created a whole new identity here in the United States because he was a, he was from a foreign country. Just just crazy how he was able to make that work. Well, even uh, e- even living children are this is kind of becoming increasingly common are the victims of identity theft because it's it, you know I hesitate to use this terminology, but it's almost the perfect crime if you can use a child's. Uh, name and social security number to take out some form of credit it probably won't be discovered for 10 plus years. And at that point, there, there's very, very little recourse. And, you know, one in five people that are the victims of identity theft will never recover, never fully recover from that, uh, from that event. So the time to react is, is not after it happens, but before. And, it, you know, that, that, unfortunately, that even goes for, for children. What would you recommend then? You know, I've got small kids. I, I think a credit freeze is probably the single most meaningful thing uh, you can do as far as identity theft, especially identity theft that's going to be financially damaging in the long term and affect your child's ability in 20 years uh, to, to get a home loan or a car loan or, or student loans for college. Uh, I, that's probably the single biggest thing you can do is that credit freeze. It, you mean a credit I, I, freeze it, on me or on them? On on them specifically, and I'm okay. I'm not sure about Alabama specifically, but some states, in most states, if you are that individual's parent or legal guardian because they're incapacitated in some way, I think it's up through, well, again, it varies, ages 16 or 18, depending on what your what state you're in, uh, you can get a credit freeze for that person. Uh, you can have it put in put in place on your request for that person, so their credit can't be used until they uh, are have reached their age of majority. That is very useful information. Yeah. The the other thing, and and this is probably the hardest thing, is I, I would say kind of, and and we know this is easier said than done, but kind of controlling your kids' uh, social media presence, and, or or at least keeping an eye on it, and. You know, to the like whatever whatever people's parenting styles might be, guiding that behavior, or restricting it, or whatever. Um, you know, we've all seen the horror stories of the uh, the NFL college draft that lost like a, a multi million dollar contract because of something he had, excuse me, something he had said on Twitter, or or whatever the case may be. Um, these things never go away, and. They, they tend to come back to haunt you. And even if they don't haunt you in a way like that, where the news media picks on something you said 10 years ago and uses it against mm-hmm. you, because that's probably not very likely for most of us. But 
uh, it, it can still influence employment later on. Um, you know, so, um, excuse me, China is currently working on their social, I think it's called their social status program, where like a, a lot of your benefits are based on what you look like on social media and uh, your, you know, your ability to get credit might be based on what you're, who you're friends with on social media. And we're actually starting to see that that particular portion of that in the U.S. We're also seeing things like your insurance rates based on the types of things that you fluctuate based on the types of things that you post on social media. Um, and then we get into the criminal element who, if, if they have access to 15 years of Facebook, probably none of your friends are looking at your 15-year-old Facebook stuff, but a criminal who wanted to know a lot of things about you in order to get you to in order to elicit information from you or get uh, or pretend to be you, probably that Facebook page with 15 years of content is going to be a really, really good resource for them. Um, so I, that would be one of my big priorities is controlling social media and, and what you have out there periodically, maybe doing a little enforced cleanup. Justin, what about some of your current, your projects now? I mean, you've got, you've got across the peak podcast, you've got, uh, I know uh, Revolver, Revolver Guy. I think that's your website, right? It is, yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a bunch of different interests. So if you want to know more about the privacy and security stuff, you, you can definitely check out the books. If you want free stuff on that, uh, I've got a blog called Operational-Security, Operational-Security.com that has... I, I think like 350 blog posts on privacy and security and identity management related topics. Um, if you want to get your feet wet, that's an awesome, awesome place to do it. Uh, revolverguy.com is also one of my blogs. And basically I discovered that writing about security all the time and writing about revolvers all the time, you get really pigeonholed into what you can actually talk about. So uh, Rich Brown, who's, who has been on your show, uh, he and I started a podcast called Across the Peak, uh, where basically we said the show isn't about anything in particular, so we have the freedom to <laughs> basically mm -hmm. talk about anything we want. It's a great show. It's one of those that I can definitely listen to every week. And uh, how, by the way, how did you and Rich become friends? Or was it just the, the Marines connection? No, so actually uh, Rich Brown and I met in person one year and one day ago uh, today. Um, I, and it, it all came about through, uh, me reaching out to Rich, uh, about getting an appearance on the American warrior show. And he and I just started talking and kind of quickly became friends and I was on the East coast. So I rented a car and drove down to, uh, down to Knoxville and met him and stayed at his house a couple of nights. And we went to the range a couple of times and we've been best friends ever since. Man, he, by the way, there's something I've got to ask him about. One of y'all's shows, you're talking about being one of your preparedness episodes. And you talked about the, one of the ice storms that they had and he was, had no power for days and some hoodlums down that didn't live too far away. You know, I guess what I would call, me and my brothers would call cooters, you know, some rednecks, <laughs> I guess, came down with guns and he thought they were looking at his windows late at night. And you remember him telling that story and he was, yeah, I sure to do. Protect his family. <laughs> And and I know where Rich lives, man. It is way way out in the in the sticks, and there's some uh, you know there's some nice houses out there and some big farms and stuff, but there's also some uh, not so nice people out there. 
Back to the revolver guy, though. I know on that website you say that you have never had social media and never will. Yeah, so, yeah, I personally have never, well, I think I did. I, well, I mean, we, we could really split hairs here. Is webmail social media? Is Gmail social media? I've definitely had a bunch of Gmail accounts. Um, I think I might have had a LinkedIn account once that I just signed up for and never did anything with, but um, this was years and years ago. But, um, yeah, I don't personally have any social media. Across the Peak does have Instagram, full disclosure. Um, but, yeah, that's uh, that's that's the extent of my social media involvement. And, by the way, I'm, I'm pretty impressed that uh, you're that familiar with the Revolver Guy. I like what you do, and... Um... Uh, yeah, I, I was going to ask you. Well, I might as well ask you anyway. We're running out of time. But your your favorite revolver, the Smith and Wesson 686, I believe. Yes, sir. Is that right? Why is that? Um, because when I was a kid in the 1980s, and you would buy those uh, handguns magazines. I don't know if you remember the big ones that would come out, and in the back it was like a catalog of guns. It's like a, you know, just a very basic picture and some basic stats about each one that I didn't really understand at the time, but the Smith and Wesson 686 was always somewhere in there. And for whatever reason, that was just the perfect looking revolver to me. And, um, I have one, I'm very lucky to have a 686 three. That's a, a early nineties built revolver with no internal locking mechanism. And back when, uh, they were actually using forged hammers and triggers and internal parts, and it is an amazing revolver, and I'm just in love with it, man. That's that's all I can tell you. You may have posted a picture of that with uh, across the peak. Was that one of the guns that was on there recently? On actually, it was. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think we posted that yesterday. Yeah, that was. Anything uh, else? I, uh, no, I think unless you have any more questions, man. No, I don't guess so. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I, I really, really appreciate it. Really appreciate your time, Beth.